Since the release of Stefan Morant's story, there have been some exciting new developments. This is a re-release of his story with brand new content. In the late 80s and early 90s, Stefan Morant and his best friend Scott Lewis were dealing drugs for local New Haven, Connecticut kingpin Frank Parisi, who was about to go to prison on a weapons charge. When Parisi asked Scott Lewis to take out a larger role in his business while he was away, Scott refused. A decision that altered the course of his and Stefan's lives. On October 11, 1990, former New Haven, Connecticut alderman Ricardo Turner and his lover Lamont Fields were shot and killed while they laid in bed. Detective Vincent Rauchy is believed to have pinned this double homicide on Scott Lewis at Frank Parisi's request. Rauchy pressured Stefan Morant to implicate Scott Lewis in a murder he knew nothing about, a false statement that Stefan recanted the very next day. However, his refusal to participate in Scott Lewis's wrongful conviction sealed him to the same fate. Rauchy coerced and incentivized another street dealer, Ovil Ruiz, sending Scott and Stefan away for 70 years. Eventually, it took an FBI investigation and the help of law students under Professor Brett Dignam to untangle Parisi and Rauchy's web of lies, setting Stefan and Scott free after both had served over 20 years for a crime they didn't commit. This is Wrongful Conviction. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse... I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Fasten your seatbelts and listen up, because the story of Stefan Morant includes a tangled web of a drug gang 
a politician who turned up dead with his male lover in his bed, a corrupt detective who was in on the drug dealing as well, and who ended up framing you, Stefan, not to mention a false confession, an incentivized witness who we know now was mentally ill and who lied through his teeth and changed his story multiple times, a mafia kingpin, in case all that other stuff wasn't enough for you, and finally, a good judge who ironically was named Hate. I mean, you can't even make this stuff up. And our featured guest today is Stefan Morant, who lived through this nightmare. So, Stefan, welcome to the show. Thank you. So let's go back to the beginning. I mean, this is a Connecticut story. And the facts are that on October 11th, 1990, former New Haven alderman named Ricardo Turner and his lover, Lamont Fields, were shot and killed in their bed. And that's where our story starts. So back in 1990, you were a kid. You were yes. 21? About, yes. Yeah. And you were, you know, you were hustling, right? Yes. But you weren't killing anybody. Absolutely not. And you certainly weren't killing Ricardo Turner and Lamont Fields. No, I did not. Okay, so how does this start? Because you ended up getting into the crosshairs of a... I want to say corrupt detective. I mean, corrupt would be too light of a word for this guy, Rauchy. I mean, you weren't his only victim. There were tons. Yes. He's sort of like a character along the lines of that guy out in uh, Brooklyn um, who framed so many of those people. Stefan, set the stage for us as to this crazy cast of characters in the New Haven drug market at the time that this double murder went down, because this was the culmination of a lot of other factors. So can you give us an overview? There's a lot of different, what you may call, I guess, organizations, guys um, selling on different blocks. I was working with Scott, and he was getting drugs from this guy by the name of Frank Parisi from out of the Fairhaven Heights area. That's who Detective Rochi used to work for. I think the reason why me and Scott got framed is because Frank was about to go to prison. I think he was sentenced to 18 years, so he wanted somebody to take over the organization. And he picked Scott to take over the organization, and Scott wanted to get out of the drug trade. So Scott said that he would not do it. And next thing you know, um, me and Scott are being framed for murder. So how did this cross your consciousness? When did you first become entangled in it? As a young man, I was living with my mother at the time. I happened to call my mother in between 7.30 and 8 o'clock. Me and a couple of the guys were got to go to a script club, so I just was calling her not to tell I was going to a script club, but to just, you know. Mom, I'm going to a strip club. Just right. like, yeah, no, nah, we're not thing. doing that. Yeah. So she tells me that someone came by. It was a detective, a couple of them. So she said they wanted me to call. So I was like, I have no problem with calling them. So she gave me the number. Happened to be Detective Rachi. And I think it was a Detective Sweeney at the time, which came in the case later on. And uh, just probably by the reason why I'm sitting before you today, because of Detective Sweeney. That's another part of the story. But, um. So I happened to call him. He's asking me, could I meet him somewhere? And I said, not a problem. So uh, my co-defendant, Mr. Lewis, and I and another gentleman, we jumped into a vehicle. He dropped me off at a local gas station around the corner from my mother's home. And um, he started asking me questions. I was hesitant about answering anything because I didn't know what was going on. He opened the back door and he thrusted me in. That was the beginning of a nightmare of my life. Um, they took me to the New Haven Police Precinct, took me to the detective borough, held me there for hours at a time, brought out police reports, statements, newspaper articles, and started asking me questions about do I know anything about a double homicide? 
I said I did not. Had you even heard about it in the neighborhood or anything? No, I did not. Um, so this is taking you totally off guard, and you didn't have a lawyer. No, I did not. Did they read you your rights? No, because you weren't a suspect yet. Or you no, I wasn't arrested. a suspect. Like I said, we were at the house drinking and smoking. So we was a little, little nice, you know, before going to the script club. Instead of spending all the money in the script club, we used to get high before. So um, we were in the police precinct for hours at the time. They start threatening me with talking about, oh, you could get the death penalty. We'll put you on a million dollar bond. So I'm looking around like in a room such as this one, small little room. You know, how do I get out of here? Like, if you help us, we'll help you. We don't want you anyway. We want Lewis, so. And Lewis was Scott Lewis. Correct. Scott Lewis was your friend. My brother. Your brother, not. From not, another mother. I mean, mother from another. Okay, so. And he had not been picked up yet? No, he wasn't. Right. So you're in there by yourself. Correct. Obviously, a scary situation going on. And plus, you were already a little impaired in the first place. That couldn't have helped. Although, I imagine this would kill your buzz real quick. Yes. But still, you didn't have all your wits about you. Um, I mean, listen, I would like to go back in time to that day and, and shake you by the collar and go, dude, call a lawyer. Like, tell him you want a lawyer. That's all you had to do, and the questioning would have had to stop. But you didn't know that because most people don't know. That was one of the reasons why we do the show because we want to tell people what to do if they, God forbid, end up in a situation like yours. So this questioning goes on and on and on. You don't even know. You probably have no sense of time at this point. Did you have a watch or anything? No, I was we probably got there. Like I said, it was like eight. I, I didn't get out of there till like probably like five, six hours later after they gave me all this information. They, they was recording me, of course, and um, they kept stopping the tape. That's not we how we want it. We need you to write the statement correctly. Stopping the tape, starting, stopping the tape. After they fed me all this information. So I said, I felt in my best interest, the only way I'm going to get out of here is to do what they want me to do. Because the key thing for me was what they said was, you after you write this, you got to come back. So now I see a way out. I, don't, I didn't see a way out before because they wasn't giving me a way out. I was like, listen, I don't know anything about the crime. I need to leave here. Let me go. And they was not letting me go. Which is actually against the law as well. They had to let you go if you asked to be let go. Right. But, I mean, considering they were willing to break so many other rules, they certainly weren't going to abide by that one either. Right. So so you give a statement. Yes. Which is a statement that they had basically fed you. Correct. Giving details of the crime that you had no idea about. Correct. But that were accurate, presumably, if they fed them to you. Yes. And then, of course, stopping and starting the tape. I mean, that's right out of a TV show as well. An amateur scriptwriter would put that in there, you know. And so they end up getting what they want. Did they then arrest you or did they send you home? No, they actually let me go. That's crazy, too. They, let me, they told me to come back because I had to sign the statement. So my godmother, her name is Emma Jones. She was a lawyer at the time, and I immediately went to her home. Um, when I got there, it was like 3, 4 in the morning. She looked at me, and I looked at her, and I told her where I was coming from. And she said, you did not say anything, right? And I just put my head down. And she said, first thing in the morning, we're going to get representation. And um, my cousin... Detective Pontu was my father's first cousin. He called my mother and he knew because at the time of the crime, when it actually happened, I wasn't even living here. I was living in South Carolina, actually going back and forth from South Carolina, North Carolina. So he was aware that I didn't live here at the time. So he called my mother. I didn't know what recant meant. So he's like, you have a statement down here. Tell Stefan, come down here, recant the statement. We know that he wasn't here. He know he wasn't here. So I went back to the detective place with my mother. 
a detective came out and he was brought the statement out for me to sign it. I heard over the dispatch because I actually was supposed to meet my cousin over there, which was Detective Pontu. And it was like, disregard, we got this. So the detective came out. He's like, you have to sign this. I said, I'm not signing anything. I said, that's bullshit. I'm not signing it. I'm not signing it because it's a lie. It's false information. It's not true. He's like, well, if you don't sign this, we're going to charge you a conspiracy. And me and my mother just, she grabbed a pocketbook and we walk out the door. Okay, so this is a bizarre story on a number of levels. One is that they let you go in the first place instead of making you sign a statement right after you had falsely confessed. Right. That's I've never heard that one before. There must have been some reason for it, but I don't know what it was. By now, this is the next day? Talking about going back to the police station? Yeah. It was a couple of days later. Now, By now, you knew the details of the crime. You knew this was a double murder. You knew it was right. a super serious situation. Right. Um, probably getting extra attention because of the fact that one of the dead guys, Ricardo Turner, was a, a former alderman, right? Right. So there was probably pressure to solve this crime. Um, so now in these three days that had passed, did you touch base with Scott Lewis? Did you let him know what was going on? Yes. I called him actually probably the next day, and I told him about it. So he actually called the police precinct and called the detective himself and uh, went down there and spoke to him. I don't know what the details of the conversation were, but uh, he went down there himself. So... What happens next? How does it progress from here to where you end up getting convicted and serving almost half your life in prison? So what was I doing prior to being convicted? Mm-hmm. So I, after leaving the police precinct, I went on with my life. I was I was working. I was working at a pizza place being a delivery guy. And the detective Rachi like, used to follow me everywhere. I moved back and forth, you know, from North Carolina, South Carolina. I moved back down there with me and my kid's mother. I formally got arrested two years later. So this is 1990 when the crime happened. I got arrested in February 1992. My kid's mother, Christy Sobin, she was pregnant with my sons. And we were actually living in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Her mother and father came to pick her up in December of 1991. Um, she was complaining because I was, of course, still in the drug trade. I was going back and forth from North Carolina, South Carolina, trying to make ends meet, selling a little bit of drugs. So I called her in 1992. It happened to be February, right? My sons was born on Valentine's Day. Twins. That's nice. One of the great, yeah, one of the greatest days of my life. Of course, it was definitely a blessing. I'm like, I got to get back to Connecticut, right? Didn't have no warrant. Didn't have no nothing. The last time I heard from the detectives when I seen them following me around in, in the pizza place and other various places like nightclubs and stuff like that. So I didn't see him anymore because I went back down south. So when I get here, I'm at my mother's home. She lives in New Haven. I happen to see a K car, you know, police detective car. I just know, you know what a detective car looks like. So I seen him and I just went the opposite way. So I happened to park my car in the commuter lot in Derby, Connecticut. And me and my friend, his name is Rob. After seeing my boys, I was on my way going back to South Carolina. So I was going to pick my car up at the commuter lot, and I seen my left tire was flat. It looked crazy. It, I just felt something. And then I seen a guy like in the Seville with a newspaper up on his face. Like, nobody reads a newspaper like that. Something's not right. So anyway, I get out of the car, and as soon as I get out of the car, police come from everywhere. It's like a scene out of a movie. 
My sons was in the back. My, my man was in the back. I was in the front. I got out. The detectives, I was like, they asked me, what was my name? I said, of course, my name is Stafford Moran. But I said, you guys, I got kids in the car. Could you put your guns down? It was like I was in control of the situation, but I wasn't. Because they put their guns down. I just told them my name. And they're like, oh, you have an arrest warrant for double homicide. I'm like, what? Now I'm arrested for double homicide. Like, I believe if I would have never came back to Connecticut, because what they was doing, they was about to take Scott to trial. So... What they did was arrest me so they could put pressure on me so I could come and testify against Mr. Lewis. And that's just not how you say they try to put division between the both of us. And it didn't work. We both ended up, of course, getting convicted. I never testified on them because I'm not testifying to a lie. But I ended up getting arrested that day. Detective Rachi was the detective that came, him and another detective, and picked me up from the Orange Precinct. I said, here come this bull crap again. So he's like, oh, all we want you to do is tell us that Mr. Lewis committed this crime. You could go home. This warrant could go away. I'm like, listen, man, what's my bond? I just need to know my bond. That's all I want to know. I ended up giving my phone call. I called my mother. My, she wasn't home, so I called my aunt, told my aunt about it, and she called my mother, let her know. And I was in jail for like a few months, and then my mother, she bonded me out. She put her home up, and um, I stayed out for an additional two years, and then... I went to trial in 1994. The whole thing is really surreal. I mean, for a lot of reasons, but also because of, in particular, because of the elapsed time, right? Because I, I feel like listening to you talk about it now, it seems like it was kind of in the taillights. You were going on with your life. You're raising your family, trying to make ends meet, doing whatever you can, a little of this, a little legitimate stuff, some other stuff, but you weren't killing anybody. You weren't even hurting anybody. They had another sort of nefarious weapon in their arsenal, which was this, and another another name that could only come out of a fictional account, right? This guy, Oville Ruiz. <laughs> like, Oville. Are you kidding me with this name? <laughs> Not Orville, Oville. Yeah. Like, evil. <laughs> and Oville Ruiz gave, well, let's call it a coerced eyewitness account. He was incentivized. He was coerced. They were using a carrot and a stick. He was promised leniency. And according to Ruiz, he came up with this story. I imagine the first time you heard about this was at trial. Did you know this Ruiz guy? Yes. I knew of him. Well, when we sold drugs, he was he used to sell drugs. We used to sell drugs, yes. We wasn't the best of friends, but I know who he was. So Ruiz came up with a pretty interesting story. He said that this alderman, the former alderman, Ricardo Turner, was storing drugs and money for Lewis your co-defendant for his operation in the second floor apartment that he lived in, and that he also owed Lewis money. So according to Oval Ruiz, I love saying that name over and over again, on October 10th and 11th of 1990, he claimed that you and Lewis discussed the idea that Turner might take the money and run. And therefore, Ruiz rode with you guys to Turner's apartment and waited in the car while you, again, this is his account, his false account, but his account. He claimed that armed with a 357 and a 38, that you guys forced your way into Turner's apartment, murdered he and Fields in their bed, then took the money and the coke, got in the getaway car. Now, this would all be a little bit more believable if not for the fact that he was promised leniency if he admitted to being the getaway driver. And, you know, he probably didn't even come up with this story. They probably came up with it and gave it to him, but whatever. Well, um, you know, at the time of me going to trial, this young kid with a background in mental health issues. 
my lawyer at the time subpoenaed his records and this guy was talking about he see red bean um he see different visions he's on holodol and various drugs for his mental health so he was not only thrown and thrusted in and given leniency for giving false testimony but he also was a mental health patient you know i don't even understand how the jury believed this guy so now they had you guys they had this guy they had a false confession. You had no shot at trial. Absolutely not. So you go to trial. You were tried separately from Lewis. Yes. I have four counts. First, I have five counts. Uh, one count of conspiracy. They dropped that at the beginning of the trial. Two counts of aiding to Benning and two counts of felony murder. So when the jury came back in, did you have any hope that they would come to the right answer? You still believed? Uh, yes. Even after everything that happened, you still believed that justice was going to win out? I, of course, I, I did have hope because I didn't do it. So, okay, so take us to that moment. So the jury comes in and they read the charges in order. Right. Right? So you've already had the one charge dropped. Now you have the first two charges and they go not guilty. Right. So after that second not guilty. I'm late. You're, you're like, I'm going home. Yes. I mean, and then they drop a bomb on you. And then a I, literal bomb. And I almost fell over. Literally, I rocked back. I had to catch myself. And then I looked at the jury person. And he, he like... He shook his head like, yeah, we convicted you. And then he read it off again. I looked in his eyes again. And then he put his head down. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company, and by Accenture, a global professional services company with leading capabilities in digital, cloud, and security. Working to reform the criminal justice system is a key pillar of the AIG Pro Bono program, which provides free legal services and other support to many nonprofit organizations and individuals most in need. As part of Accenture's commitment to racial and civil justice, Accenture's Legal Access Program provides pro bono legal services in partnership with more than 40 organizations, bringing meaningful change to people and communities worldwide. The prosecutor, which is, he was just as corrupt as the detective in my eyes. Um, my sons, again, they was twins. They were two-year-old at the time. And um, I didn't see my sons in a while, you know. So I didn't bring me to court. I didn't even know I was going to court. The prosecutor buys a fruit basket. He puts it on the table. So my mother's there. I didn't know my mother was going to be there. And my sons are there. So he says to me, you missed this? Of course. What kind of question is that? Of course I miss my kids. He says, so what you got to do about it? I said, listen, I told you before, I don't know nothing about this. I'm not, the same way I'm looking at my sons right here, Mr. Lewis has kids as well. So I'm going to just take myself and say, okay, I'm going to lie on the man to take myself out of prison and put him in prison possibly. I can't do that. I, 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 I just can't do that. Did he actually tell you that he was willing to give you a deal if you would testify against Lewis or you just assume that? That's what he told me. And what was the deal that he offered you? He said we would work it out. He didn't tell me, well, I'm going to take 35. I'm, I got 70 years now, 35 years running wild, which means do this 35 years and start all over again. 
So what can you offer me? You can't offer me nothing. You cannot, he couldn't offer me a day because I'm not going to sit here and lie on a man for something that I didn't do and he didn't do. It's just not going to happen. And that speaks to your character, too, because I think there's, you know, no, again, no one knows how you would, how anyone would deal with a situation like the one that you were in, but you handled it, I mean, with courage and, um, you know, you, you did the right thing at extreme cost to yourself. So now you're sentenced to 70 years and you get taken to prison. One of the reasons I, I do this work and I'm so obsessed and committed to it, have been for my whole adult life and will be for the rest of my adult life, however long that may be, is because of people like you. I'm honestly in awe that people like yourself can go through what you went through and come out with this. And I, and I picked it up when we met before. is one of the reasons I want to have you on the show because you're such a positive guy and you're such a sort of, I mean, to meet you, no one would ever know that you had been through anything like this, much less this totally insane ordeal. So how did you survive prison? Was it as bad as what you were expecting? Was it as bad as what people think it is? Well, for me, um, I have a Christian background, right? Um, my grandmother was, she just was a faith-driven woman. My mother, you know, my father used to take me to church all the time. Actually, the day I got convicted, June 8th, that night when they threw me, told me they remanded me, I was like, oh, like the whole building on top of me, like, and I didn't know how I was going to get it off of me. So they put me in a bullpen. There was nobody down there, and I'm looking around, like, and I had a suit on so I, and a tie, so I shifted my tie from the left to the right, and I'm like, yo, how did I get here? How did this happen to me? So I was about to cry, of course. I'm like, and so literally a voice came over me and said, son, you're going to be all right. You know, I got down on my knees in that bullpen and I prayed. And that was uh, my peace. That was my sanctuary. That was my sanity. That's what brought me through. Just not my faith alone, but my family was there for me and they're still there for me. Um, my big brother, Frank, my brother, Julian, um, he passed away at Lupus a year before I came home. He was my greatest support. My brother, Leander, my mother, Linda, all a host of family and friends. I mean, you know, it's crazy in prison because some people don't even know what the visiting room looked like. I just had a, a great support. My wife, rain, sleet, or snow. I'm telling you, if it was six feet of snow and, and the roses clear, she was there. You know, and, and that says a lot for her. You know, but um, again, I had a lot of family there for me. My family was there. They're still there for me. And again, my faith kept me whole. You know, I actually go to school right now to a Bible Institute to become a minister. It's not easy. I go through a lot of ups and downs because of uh, the incarceration. I call it today because of they thrust me into a cage. I'm that dog that's running away from the cage, never to go back to that cage again. I want to go back there, but I want to go back there for the right reasons. As far as if I could inspire or encourage somebody to be like, listen, there is hope. This guys that see me today when I was actually incarcerated, well, I don't call it incarcerated again, when I was thrust into that cage, they just literally like start crying. Like, Yo, yo, you believed. Like, you believed you was coming home or you was going home and you're here. Sometimes, of course, it gets rough sometimes, you know? But what do you do with a situation when it happens to you? Do you sit down, weep, and cry, or do you get up and stand tall? Because that's what they want you to do. They want you to be like, okay, we're going to take this person, thrust them in a cage, and we want them to become an animal. I did the total opposite. I mean, how did you get out? I mean, these are the things I want to get to here because you were there for 20 years. 
21. 21 years in maximum security, obviously, it's felony murder. Yes. I believe that my guy made a way. You know, I mean, of course, legal things took place, but people came back, like I mentioned to you earlier, Detective Sweeney. He was a great part in this case. He came back after he was in Bosnia in 1998, 1999. He happened to see my case. I was going back for a petition for new trial. And um, I had a lawyer by the name of Michael Fitzpatrick at the time, and he said, I got some good evidence that's coming. And um, that was, the, it took another 1999 to 2015, 16 more years for the court to even listen to him. And this was a supervisor of Detective Rachi that's telling you that the two men that you have in prison, if you're going by the information that was gathered by Detective Rachi and that informant that you had that testified on these guys, absolutely not. No, Sweeney, Sweeney was saying that. Sweeney. He came to testify to that. That's so crazy. I'm getting the chills now thinking about it because here you have a senior official in law enforcement who is coming forward with no motivation. What could his motivation possibly be other than the truth? And they're going, nah, we're good. Like, yeah. I mean, he's he's one of the heroes in this story, right? Without a doubt. Scott Lewis wrote a letter to the FBI as well about Rachi. They looked into it. And every time they did, they would find that things were not as he said they were, but as you guys said they were. They found that Rauchy not only framed you and Lewis, but that he framed a number of other people. I don't think we'll ever know how many, because we know when these guys do it, like Scarcella in Brooklyn, they just keep doing it and doing it and doing it as long as they get away with it, which is why it's so important that we tell these stories. And they even brought him back, Rauchy. They brought yes. him back to New Haven to question him. But they never charged him. They, they ended up charging him, which is ridiculous, but they charged him for misbilling his overtime hours and assaulting his wife, which is a serious crime in my view. And yet he received two years probation. Um, so he was dealing drugs, framing people for murder, assaulting his wife, and uh, he gets two years probation. And you end up with 70 years for a crime you didn't commit. Another hero in this story... And it's, it's interesting because it's a New Haven story. And along comes a Yale law professor named Brett Dignam and Richard Emanuel and a whole bunch of law students, right, coming in like the cavalry. Yes. All from Yale. Yes. And um, that's a pretty good group to have on your side because at Yale, they don't mess around. There's no question that you have an incredible amount of brain power and energy devoted to your case. How did they get involved? How did they find out about it? They got involved in Scott case, actually. 2009 and um, Brett moved from um, she was a law professor at Yale and then she moved to Columbia and then they just the students a lot of the students just went along with her or she just had some more Colombian students I'm not really sure of the whole procedure how it went down but um, they played a big role in this getting the conviction overturned and finally a good judge who ironically was named Hate the judge Hate huh what a name but a loving guy yeah, Judge Charles Haight, a U.S. District Judge, Charles Haight Jr. Your team won a ruling in front of Judge Haight that the prosecution had failed to tell the defense, and this is heavy, get ready, that the key witness, Oval Ruiz, had repeatedly denied having any knowledge of the murders. All of a sudden, he had a, a big memory recall after he was offered a deal. But it's important to recognize that he was at least initially telling the truth doesn't excuse his behavior whatsoever, but it does highlight 
the, the lengths that they were willing to go to to get a conviction. And let us not forget that, of course, in your case, like in so many other wrongful conviction cases, like whoever it was that went and cold-bloodedly gunned these two guys down, whether it was one guy, two guys, a woman, we don't know who it was, right? I don't know if you to this day know who it was. No, I don't know who it is. Right. I mean, they have other uh, suspects that they say they have, um, but um, I don't know if they push forward to try to arrest anybody. I mean, I don't wish nothing bad on anybody, but whether it's one individual, two or three individuals still out there. So now what about our public? Exactly. Let's just say it's not unlikely that whoever it was that committed this crime went on to commit other terrible crimes while you guys were serving the time for them. So how did you end up getting out? Actually, Mr. Lewis, he was released in February, March of 2014 on a bracelet. Um, Judge Haight ordered that they release him within 90 days, I think, of after the conviction was overturned. Then they had to go to the Second Circuit Court, and then all the charges were dropped. I think he got exonerated in 2016, if I'm not mistaken. Unlike myself, Mr. Lewis had a dream team, and I had a team that wasn't fighting for me at all. So push forward to a year later, the attorney said he, he spoke with the district attorney and said, oh, I think that um, I could talk to him. I said, talk to him about what? Like, why now you not filing the motion for me to get out of prison? Um, because you and Mr. Lewis' case is different. I said, what you mean? What do you mean different? We went. To, we just went to trial differently. The evidence is the same. We just went to trial at different times. I want to be out, released from prison. I said, how long more do you think this is going to take? He said, uh, it might take another three years. What? This man's out of prison. You're telling me I still got to wait an additional three years to be released from prison? He was like, uh, yeah. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go talk because I'm friends with the district attorney. So I'm going to go down there and see if he'll just say, uh, see what can happen. I think that was a Tuesday. So he came back the very next day. He's like, oh, I got good news from you. You're going home. The district attorney said, we'll give you time served, but you have to cop out. I'm thinking now. My little brother, he just passed away, Lupus. I lost my grandfather. I lost my father. I lost a host of a lot of friends. My mother's getting older. My children are older. You know, they dad, when are you coming home? I have a wife now that married me for I don't know why in prison in 2009. What do I do? I'm between a rock and a hard place. Do I sit here and say, listen, I won't fight for my name to be clear for another three years? There's nothing guaranteed in the judicial system. They already failed me once. So what do I do? I've always heard that if you, you can fight better from the outside than the inside. I need to get out. I need to get out of here. So I went with the terms and the agreement. I mean, ignorant, of course, of the repercussions of still fighting for my conviction because I still have a conviction. Mr. Lewis, as I told you a couple of minutes ago, is exonerated. Same evidence, just different trial. He's exonerated. I'm struggling. You know, what do you do? You know, I got to survive, though. You know, I'm thankful that I'm able to be able to stand on my two feet. I'm able to to go to a job and to go and make a difference. Um, I don't know if you know, but I work at a halfway house. You know, it's a part of the correctional facility. Like, my grandmother was a caregiver, so I guess I'm following the footsteps of her. I also just took on another job working with the mental health. I work at Hartford Healthcare now. It's not a lot of money, but it's getting me and my wife by. Me and my lawyer right now, we're trying to put together a pardon to try to um, see if that the state of Connecticut will pardon me unusual circumstances. Because I can't get jobs that pays well because I have a conviction on my record. You know, I'm, I'm actually, like, getting half the pay, you know, for 
something I didn't do and I'm still suffering. Sometimes I'll be like, yo, why? But then at the end of the day, why not? I'm not the first person that it happened to and won't be the last person that it happens to. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. 
My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Stefan, last time we spoke, you were still fighting for your innocence to be recognized. You were out here struggling to get by on what jobs you could get with that murder conviction hanging over your head until you and your attorney, Ken Rosenthal, were finally able to get a hearing in July of 2021, just a short time ago, for an absolute pardon, which would finally expunge your record of having ever been convicted of a crime. And you finally received your absolute pardon certificate just a few months later. When you found out, what was that moment like? Whew, a bunch of bricks. Everything just fell off my shoulders. It was like, I'm free. You know, it was like for a long time, I've been accused of something that I did not do. And now it felt like a, a release. You know, I'm free. I mean, I'm finally free. Words can't even sum it up. Right now, I'm ready to just to tear up. I think I was telling you earlier this year that, uh, they called me in for jury duty. Wait, you? So they called you. Imagine that. Freshly minted exoneree, right? Jury They duty. called you for jury duty. There's something really kind of poetic about that. The same court that uh, convicted me was calling me in for jury duty. They didn't pick me for the jury, but <laughs> they called me in for jury duty. I felt, I felt honored. I felt like a human being. I felt a sense of release so even though I probably couldn't serve in the jury because I was still a convicted felon at the time but it was just an honor for the jury pool to even call me yeah I can't imagine uh, and let's face it most people do everything they can to avoid jury duty which I'm going to talk directly to our audience here please take what you've learned here and serve on a jury every chance you get okay it is an honor and it is a duty and it is an opportunity for each of us to help prevent what happened to Stefan and to every other one of the exonerees that we've covered in these 12 seasons of wrongful conviction, we have the opportunity to prevent that from happening to other people, but it starts with serving on a jury. So yeah, I can see how, you know, after being exiled from the rest of society, that even jury duty could feel like a sort of a warm welcome, like almost like a blessing. And you deserve so much more than that. I mean, now you're going to be eligible for compensation, which is great, but no amount of money will ever be able to replace what they took from you. Two decades of time. And speaking of that, I hope that on top of the struggle of being out here, living with a conviction on your record, having to check that box on job applications, working four jobs, I hope that you've been able to make up for lost time with your loved ones. Well, I'm fortunate and has been blessed that me and my wife, Kimberly Morant, purchased a home. Great woman. Um, she's my angel. She is a ride or die. She's somebody that I hold at a at a high regard that uh man, I'm I'm getting tongue twisted right now just thinking that who would do that? I mean, who would just come into somebody's life and just believe in their innocence? She believed in me. She believed that I was innocent. Other than that, she said she would never have stayed. She became my wife in 2009 while in prison. Between me and her, we have seven children. Twyla, Stefan, Mia, Jayla, 
Prince, Christian and Julian. We have grandchildren now, Stefan III, Tylen, Marquise, Madison, Demi, and Juliana. And uh, just knowing that I wasn't here for my children, but thank God I'm here for my grandchildren. I hope that we could develop a relationship that, man, it's hard because they have a life, we have a life. Hopefully it gets better. I want to be there more because the relationship is not what it should be. I mean, my children tell me every time they thought that it would be different. They thought it would make us closer when you came home. My daughter always says that she spoke to me, seemed like more when I was able to call her for them 15 minutes. And that's to me is sad for me to just hear that from her. I mean, and I just pray that uh, one day that we all could just, just find time for one another. Because now, again, again, you heard me earlier, I work for a job. So it's like I'm always trying to stay busy, stay busy. So I'm always tagged with a place that I am so they can never do that to me again. Yeah, it's crazy, Stefan. And it's it's powerful to hear you say it. But you're not the first guy I've heard say that or something like it. I mean, some guys will say that they will get receipts anywhere they can, every time they can get a receipt for a pack of gum, anything. I just looked at my drawer. My drawer is full of so many. Everywhere I go, they you want to receipt? Yeah, I need that. Timestamp. Absolutely. Location, like on my phone, I put, yeah, do you want people to know your, yeah, location. And that's sad because you want a private life, but you can't have a private life because you're afraid that something like this can happen to you again. Yeah. I mean, that is a sad part of reality. And, a, you know, it's a continuing toll of, of the damage that they did. And But I got to say, everyone on the wrongful conviction team is really like so, so happy for you now. And with your new clean record, I guess all I can say is may your reputation never be smeared and impugned again. And now we come to my favorite part of the show, which of course is called Closing Arguments. And with the incredible, magnificent news of your absolute pardon, this will be a brand new closing argument from the one we did with you back in 2019. Honestly, I can't wait to hear this one. So first, I want to thank you again, Stefan, for sharing with us your incredible courage, your journey, your, your spirit, all of it. And now I'm going to turn my microphone off, keep my headphones on, kick back in my chair and just listen to anything you feel you want to say. For me, uh, closing arguments would be that to recognize my mother been there from the beginning, it's still there now. My little brother, Leander, my big brother, Frank, my wife, of course, my mother-in-law, father-in-law, my children, I named them earlier. For us to just have a better relationship and build on this. I mean, this has caused so much grief and so much pain in my life, but I just want to make it better. But we have to do it together. Not, you know, as individuals, sometimes we get selfish and think that we got to put off things but sometimes take that minute take that hour out and that second because nothing is promised to you I mean every day is a blessing just to be on this earth we know what we just went through in this last couple of years with this COVID situation I just just pray that uh, this happened for me and I hope that everybody that's unjustly incarcerated get their day in court that they're able to come and do the same thing I'm doing right now with this podcast and to share their story amongst the world that uh, this is the day that the Lord has made and let us rejoice and be exceedingly glad therein. That's one of my favorite sayings. 
And I'm so grateful to God that I know that that's the only reason why I stand before you today. And I sit here and I'm able to be here. And again, thank you to Jason Flom and thank you to Connor for allowing me just to be here, just to share the story and hope that it can help somebody see something or hear something or some people just do the right thing just to know that you don't have to lie on somebody in order to change your life or to save your life because it's no good going to come out of that. If you do something wrong to somebody, believe me, it's going to come back on you tenfold. And with that, I say have a blessed day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Justin Golden, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.